Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the conclusion to the 2020-2021 uh, Faith and Life Lecture Series. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, uh, privileged to serve as the senior pastor of St. Philip the Deacon Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. We are coming to you, or I'm coming to you anyway, from the sanctuary of St. Philip the Deacon. Uh, when we uh, finalized plans for this, for this particular event, we weren't quite sure where we would be with COVID, and so we had to make a decision a couple months ago, and so our final speaker is joining us uh, virtually again uh, from California. We're delighted to have her with us, and I'll introduce her in a second. Uh, I want to offer a special welcome to anyone joining us tonight for the first time. We're delighted to have you with us. Uh, if you've not been to a Faith in Life event in the past, and again, we're now concluding our 18th uh, year, I mentioned, the, the series has been an opportunity to welcome Christians uh, from all walks of life, um, uh, everything from business and nonprofit leaders to counselors to historians to scientists to um, journalists and bloggers and authors. Um, and what we do is we have a chance to hear from them and then there's always also, and this is very important, I want to make this clear at the front end, there's an opportunity for uh, questions from our audience. So you can submit those questions on any of the viewing platforms you're watching this on or by uh, emailing them to social at spdlc.org and hopefully we'll have time uh, to offer those questions up to our speaker after she gives a 35-minute talk or so. I mentioned that our speakers come from all walks of life, and despite the fact that this is a uh, series with the word faith in it, uh, the truth is that we've had a relatively small number of what I might call professional theologians uh, or pastors as our speakers. Uh, so tonight's speaker is the exception to that role, rule. Uh, she came to the ministry late in life uh, after serving in all kinds of other capacities as a speaker, a consultant, and an educator. She is also the daughter of someone you may have heard of, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984. Uh, I always like to ask my speakers uh, if there's some kind of quirky, interesting fact that doesn't appear on their uh, typical biography that I can use when I'm introducing them. And she gave me a couple. Uh, I mentioned she, come, she came to the ministry later in life, and so the first thing she mentioned was, um, that when she was in seminary, one of her professors asked what song title would describe our pathway to the priesthood. And my song was The Long and Winding Road. And then uh, she mentioned that also while she was in the discernment ministry or process leading to ministry, she was asked which character in the Bible she identifies with the most. Her reply, she said, has always been Jonah. And she went on to add that running away is a much maligned option but is often a great choice. We are delighted to welcome her tonight. Will you join me in welcoming uh, the person who is currently the Associate Rector of All Saints Episcopal in Beverly Hills, the Reverend Nantambi Naomi Tutu. Thank you so much, thank you. And it is an honor to be a part of the life and faith and, and life <laughs> um, program and to be wrapping up your your 18th season oh my goodness um my my topic this evening is faith and reconciliation um talking out of the experience for me of 
being in South Africa during our truth and reconciliation process and wondering what that has to say to people of faith um, around the world. And um, so when I was thinking about how I would like to start this evening, um, the, the, the story that came to me from the Truth and Reconciliation experience is the story of two sides of a story. So on the one hand, we have the mothers of the Guguletu Seven, which is the mothers of a group of young men who had met uh, a man who told them that he was recruiting them for the African National Congress and that they would be, he would help them to train, to be members of the African National Congress and to eventually join the struggle in exile. And so these young men were uh, following this man who was promising them a role in the liberation of the country. And so we have their mothers. And on the other hand is the man who recruited them, who it turned out, in fact, was not a member of the liberation movement, but rather was an undercover uh, secret police. And both of these groups, the policemen and the mothers, came to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The mothers came to the Human Rights Committee, which was the committee within the commission that was tasked with hearing the stories of victims and survivors of human rights abuses. And they um, told their story, which was a heart-wrenching story. In fact, one of the mothers spoke about leaving her son as she went off to work that morning. And as far as she knew, she was heading to work and he was heading to school. She came back from work and had no idea what had transpired and went home, turned on the television and the news came on. And the first thing she saw was the body of her son, her son's dead body being dragged down the street behind a police van. And so um, she then uh, was obviously completely distraught at this occurrence to see her son who, as far as she knew, was, had gone off to school that morning and now is being described on the South African news as a terrorist who had come into the country from a neighboring country and was now trying to stir up trouble. And, uh, and so the mothers went to the Truth Commission to tell their story, but also to try and find out what was the backstory to their children's murder. 
And the young police officer came to the Truth Commission and he went to the Amnesty Committee, which was the, the arm of the commission that was tasked with hearing applications for amnesty. And in order to achieve amnesty, all that the, you had to do was you had to tell the truth, the truth of what you had done, the truth of why you had done it, and to show that there was some political impetus for your action, and that also that they had to be some kind of level of um, you, that, that you could not do some major awful act and then say, I was trying to convince people of the rightness of my actions. So that there, there had to be some kind of, of, of level of, of, of connection between your actions and the goal. And, um, and so he had come to the, commi the committee to apply for amnesty for being the person who had set up these seven young men who had told them that they would be joining the liberation movement and in fact had set them up on that day that he had told them we are meeting today to join, to move overseas, had actually set them up for a trap by the police. And so he came to ask for amnesty for his role in the death of the seven young men. And as part of the, the amnesty committee hearings, um, they would offer those who applied for amnesty an opportunity to ask for the forgiveness of the people that they had directly impacted. And so he was offered an opportunity to, to meet with the families and he asked that if that would happen. And the mothers agreed to meet with him. They agreed with great resistance. Um, and in fact, they were very clear, um, almost all of them were clear that we are going to go and hear what he has to say, but I, we are never going to forgive him. What we want to know is how could he, another young black man, set up young black men to be killed by the apartheid forces. And so they gathered and he told them his story. He told them about being offered the opportunity to be a secret policeman, they told them about the struggles that that entailed told them about what had been going on in his mind as he had set their sons up. And eventually, one of the mothers said to him, so the mothers were from the Western Cape, which is a Kosa-speaking area, and he was originally from Pretoria and was Sutu-speaking. So they, they don't speak the same language. Um, but one of the mothers said to him, your name, Tapelo, doesn't that mean prayer in, in Sisutu? And um, he said, yes, my name means prayer. And so she stood up and she said, 
my son, my prayer for you is that you are able to live your best life moving forward. I share that story because it is a both and, right? It is the courage that he needed, first of all, to go before the amnesty committee and tell the truth of his actions. Now, I'm sure as you're listening to me and you're here, you heard me say that in order to qualify for amnesty, you had to tell the truth. But you would be amazed at the number of people who did not tell the truth. That we had people who came to the amnesty committee and spoke about, yes, we arrested those young people and um, then we questioned them for uh, half an hour or so. And then we gave them drugged coffee. And when they fell asleep, we shot and killed them which in and of itself is already a terrible thing. However, when they exhumed the bodies of the people that they said they had drugged and shot, it was very clear that these were not the bodies of people who had simply been drugged and shot, but that these were bodies that had been tortured over hours, over days, that these were people who had been starved, that these were people, I mean, that had been put through all manner of evil and and yet you know you would think that given that all they had to do was tell the truth that to tell the truth was their gate to freedom right that all they had to do was tell the truth and they were home free and they were home free not just from criminal prosecution from the government but they were home free from civil prosecution, from the victims and survivors of their atrocities. So you would think that the impetus would be for truth. And yet so many of those who came could not come to tell the truth. They could not bring themselves to tell the truth of what they had done. So it did take courage for Tapelo to come and speak the truth to the commission and then not just that, but then to go and speak the truth to the people he had injured the most, those who were still alive, the parents, the mothers of those seven young men. But also I tell the story because of the story of those mothers and particularly the one who stood and said, not only did she have a prayer for this man, who was instrumental in the death of her son, but that she said, my prayer for you, my son, my prayer for you, my son, that she was calling the man who had killed her real biological son, was calling him my son, as my son in our community, that you are a young man and praying for him a life, the best life that he could live. And I think that those two things actually go together. The telling of the truth and the ability then to live your best life. And I think that that 
is the lesson, in fact, that I took from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and that I hope is the lesson that the world will take from, from, from that. That the truth, as our Lord said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because there is so much in our world that tells us that, nah, the truth, I mean, yeah, the truth is good, but sometimes eh, we don't want the truth. We, we need to um, cushion the truth. We need to make the truth prettier than it is so that we can be comfortable in our truth rather than the truth. And what Tapelo experienced to me is in fact what our faith actually offers us all if we are brave enough to speak the truth and to hear the truth from one another. And I, I, and I say that um, having been caught in not telling the full truth myself as, as, as many of my country uh, people discovered that, um, you know, after our first democratic election, when South Africa was really the, the flavor of the month, um, and the, you know, people were all in awe of our president, Nelson Mandela, and the, 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 the way that he stepped out into the world and stepped into South Africa and led a process of reconciliation in our country. And, um, and so, you know, we as South Africans um, were, were so happy to be the flavor of the month. And wherever we went, when people would say, where are you from? Oh, I'm from South Africa. You know, the country that gave the world Nelson Mandela, this amazing man who walked out of jail and still has um, his prison wardens come to his home and be part of his own personal celebrations. And we were called on that by President Mandela himself, who said that as South Africans, we cannot go around, and, and I know this sounds weird coming from him, but he was somebody of such humility that even as he spoke things like this, you, you heard them as lessons, not as bragging. And he said, you know, as South Africans, we cannot go out into the world and say, oh, we are from the country of Nelson Mandela unless we are also willing to say we are from the country of Eugene de Kock. And Eugene de Kock was also a, a police officer. He was in fact the head of a murder squad, a death squad, and was also the head of one of the most notorious torture prisons in South Africa, Flak Flas. And he came to the commission and applied for amnesty. And he did indeed tell the truth. However, there was that thing that I spoke about earlier about some level of 
what is the connection between your actions and your goals? And it was felt that his actions were so over the top, leading death squads, not just into black communities, but into neighboring countries, that the, the black class had tortured and murdered so many people. So he was turned down for amnesty. However, the point that President Mandela was trying to make was that the story of Eugene de Kock is as much the story of South Africa as is the story of Nelson Mandela. And if we as South Africans are going to claim the story of our country, we have to claim the ugly truth as well as the beautiful truth. And that is the lesson that I hope people around the world, and in particular people in this, my other home country, would take as the learning of this healing process that happened in South Africa, that the healing could not take place without truth, and that we could not choose the truth that we wanted to tell that we had to be like Tabelo and admit the ways in which we had led to others suffering. And I think that right now in this country, that lesson of the TRC is, is of utmost importance because we are caught in a time where we had been told um, some years ago that there are things such as the alternative truth or alternative facts, which is, is not a thing, I, I promise you. It is not a thing that the story that we tell, we can tell from different perspectives. However, the fundamental part of the story is the same. So we can talk about American history and, and say that, well, we are going to talk about history from the perspective of those who own slaves. Okay, be clear that that is the story we are telling. And then we must also make sure that we are also telling the story from the perspective of those who were enslaved that we must tell the story of the, 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 the discovery of the United States. We can tell that from the perspective of those who came from Europe. But if we want to be a true community, then we must also be sure to tell the story from the perspective of the indigenous people whom they found here. That if we want to live a life of true freedom, then we have to be a people willing to tell the full truth. We have to, we, we cannot be about saying, um, you know, that was back then when we talk about slavery, but that we are... Um, are so intent on telling the full story of the, 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 the conquest of the West, if you like, that the, the heroic 
move of, of Europeans to move to colonize this country. That, 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 is, that too is way back then. But so if we're going to claim the heroic story, we also have to claim the parts of that story that are not heroic, the parts of that story that are ugly, the parts of that story that are about oppression, the parts of that story that do not make us proud. And maybe that is the key. The key for true reconciliation to happen is for us to admit to ourselves that what we need to take from history is not simply something that makes us proud, but what we need to take from history is something that teaches us, teaches us what we can, what we should be aiming for, what we should be doing, the parts of our history that are indeed positive, that we that teach us the way to go, but that we must also pay attention to the part of our story that is shameful to us, the part of our story that is about the dehumanization of some of God's children, the part of our story that is about the, 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 the disregard of the culture of indigenous people, that we must tell the full story so that we can learn both the things that we should do to move forward and the things that we must stop doing so that we can move forward. And for me, this faith that I, that I cling to and have clung to throughout my life, that it has been my faith that taught my, well, it was my grandmother's faith indeed, that taught my grandmother that she was a, a, a wonderful child of God, no matter what an apartheid system around her told her. And that was the lesson, the faith that she passed on to me, the faith that I was made in God's image and that no one could take that away from me. So that this faith has been a faith that has sustained me through apartheid, and it is a faith that has challenged me in my life after apartheid as I have become comfortable and um, I, I guess kind of middle class, maybe sort of kind of, um, that, that in that place of comfort to remember that if my grand, as my grandmother said, I was wonderfully made in God's image, all those I encounter are also wonderfully made in God's image. And therefore, when I see someone who is homeless, when I see someone on the street asking for help, that I should remember that this too is God's child. And what is it that my, my God would have me do with that person? 
that when I am faced with um, people who who spout racism at me, that and and I'm not going to pretend that I'm a saint and that I I simply say God bless you in the response to that. I I can let you know that I have had very unchristlike responses in situations, but that to hold on to that faith that before me stands a child of God who, if offered an opportunity to recognize the God in them and the God in me, might be freed of their racism. And, and it has been this faith that has pushed me, if you like, to, to continue to speak about the challenge that we face as people of faith in building a just world. And the first challenge that we face, we face is the challenge to be willing to hear the full truth of our story and the full truth of the story of that person whom we know as other. That we must be, uh, we must be willing to believe that somewhere in that other is that child of God, just as we are. I, I, I would like to close with uh, a story that I, I share all the time in talking about this recognition of one another as, as God's children in, in this move towards reconciliation. And it is a story from um, my 20s when I had started working in Connecticut and, um, and, and, and then went home on, on vacation. And so this was my first time going home with a credit card and a driver's license. So that was impressive. And, um, and so I rented a car and was driving to go and visit my cousins in Krugersdorp, um, where my, my parents' families come from. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, but this was during a time of a state of emergency and there were police and military roadblocks outside all of the townships. And I was stopped at a military roadblock and got out with an attitude because that was one of our slight ways of resisting was to be, have an attitude when you were up faced with South African military. And so I stood by my car with an attitude and happened to look at the face of the young man who was actually searching my car. And I recognized in his face, absolute fear. And my first thought was, why are you afraid? I mean, your friends are the ones around us with guns. It's not my people. Um, and, and then I just thought, this is a young man, again, a child of God. And I started talking to him. I mean, nothing, nothing really deep or profound. It was simply, you know, this is what you do for entertainment on a Friday afternoon. 
Um, and, and, and we started a conversation and we spoke um, as, as he was searching my car and joked. Now, this would be such an awesome story if I could now tell you that I am the godmother of his children and we go on family vacations together every few years. But the truth is, no, I have no idea who he is or where he is. And I drove away that evening. But for that five minutes, I allowed myself to see another human being, another child of God, and not simply the enemy. And he allowed himself to see another child of God and not simply another possible terrorist. And sometimes that path to reconciliation is just in those five minute steps where we look on one another and recognize a brother and sister in Christ. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you so much, Naomi. Um, so I'm gonna let you, Naomi, have a chance to rest your voice for a minute. Um, I will remind all of us uh, viewers uh, that if you have a question, please uh, submit it through one of our social media platforms, the, the platform you're watching on, or at that uh, email address, social at spdlc.org email. Uh, so we'll be collecting those questions. I'll ask them of Naomi in a second. But uh, before we do that, a few quick announcements. Um, the first is that we are hard at work on the start of next year's season, which will begin in the fall of 2021. Um, we're, we're, we don't have the first date set yet, but we are working hard on it. And if you would like to be updated about all of those events, um, we're going to show you on your screen and I will tell you uh, that you can either sign up for emails, um, that's at spdlc.org slash enews, and click the Faith and Life box for those that email subscription. We will not send you other information if that's the only box you, you click. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on social media, particularly on Facebook and Instagram. And again, the handles or the URLs are indicated there. If you're interested, uh, before the next Faith and Life event, uh, in the fall, in uh, hearing reflections uh, twice a week from me uh, on uh, a podcast called Reflections on Faith. Uh, you can sign up for that on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash reflections on faith as well. And again, all of those, uh, and I will likely be talking about faith and life on, on those podcasts as we approach um, next year's series. So anyway, stay tuned for next year's uh, season. We'll announce it uh, publicly, likely in August. I, I will say too that we had the privilege of interviewing Naomi uh, for our quarterly magazine. This is actually the current issue. The, the issue that she will be in uh, in that interview is the summer issue, which is uh, going to press actually any day now. Uh, if you do not get this, if you're not on our <laughs> mailing list, uh, feel free to uh, sign up for that at some of those same emails, and we'll, we're happy to send you a copy of that. It's a wonderful interview, and again, Naomi, thank you for taking time uh, to do that a month or two ago. I did mention uh, th this is the last of this year's uh, season, uh, or last event of this year's season, um, and I, I just want to pause, uh, as we always do, but I want to pause in a maybe more 
uh, explicit way to thank all of the individuals and organizations who make these possible. This is a community service of St. Philip Deacon, and we're very proud of that fact, uh, but it's not part of the budget of the church. From the beginning, the series has always been sponsored by individual and corporate contributors. Uh, I think in the front end of this, we listed all of the individual ones. If, again, we had been in person, those are always listed in our programs. Um, I, and so thank you to all of those of you who have supported this with your generous contributions as individuals. I also want to call out and uh, say a special word of thanks to our corporate sponsors, which include Crossroads Financial Group. Uh, thank you to Jim there. Uh, Augio, thank you to Joe and Don at Augio. Uh, Mastercraft Labels, Jeff and Patrice, I'm grateful to both of you. Rapid Packaging, Phil and Mona. Uh, Productivity Inc., Greg and Lisa, thank you very much. Uh, Cressa, Jim and Ruth Ann, uh, Ulrich Real Estate, uh, Beth and Eddie, and Mally uh, Design, uh, Brian and Danae. Um, all of you make these wonderful presentations possible. Uh, again, when we are back together in person and even today, but uh, they've always been free and open to the public. Uh, there's never been a cost to attend them. Uh, we're actually grateful that technology has allowed us to expand our reach even more. So again, to all of our sponsors, I say thank you, thank you, thank you. And if there were a crowd in the sanctuary, uh, those of you who have supported the series financially would be hearing um, full-throated applause, I can assure you. <laughs> so thank you all. Um, I think those were the only announcements I needed to make. So, uh, Naomi, I will, um, I've got some questions for you, and um, I'm actually going to start, if I could, uh, with, you, you, used, you talked a lot about um, names, uh, and I, one of which, of course, my favorite one is Child of God. Mm -hmm. which all of us are, of course, as Christians, we believe. Uh, you talked about the young man whose name meant prayer. Um, I actually just saw a special about Malala, the uh, Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize winner from 2014, whose name, I believe, means both grief-stricken and hero, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you would share, uh, if there is one, I, don't, I can't remember, honestly, if there's a, a, a story to your uh, name, Nantambi, and, and if so, could you talk about that? Maybe it's not that interesting. I don't know. But I wanted to start there. <laughs> well, um, actually, the, the story is with all my names. That mm. if, if, you, if you saw my, my birth certificate, <laughs> my names are on two lines. <laughs> ah. Because my, my name is Nontombi Naomi Cecilia Nozizwe Elsie, which nobody claims, Tutu. And um, and so Nondombi means mother of girls, which was the name that I was given in honor of my paternal grandmother, who I was the like seventh granddaughter. So it was you know that I I broke the balance between an equal number of boys and girls, and so she was. And so the name I was given was actually for her, mother of girls. Mm. And now I made her a senior mother of many girls. Okay. Um, and, um, and, and then my other name, Nozizwe, which means mother of many lands, mm. I was given by my maternal grandmother. Um, and, um, and, and funnily enough, I, I feel as though, you know, when I, as I was growing up, and my name Nondombi is the one that is most used, 
um, by family. So I thought that that would mean that I was only going to have girls. Mm. And so then when my son was born, I had to rethink the meaning of my name. And I think, though, that what, what it actually foretold for me was my, my commitment to gender justice and mm. particularly to the empowerment of women and girls. Mm. And so I, I claim it in that, in that spirit. But the story, let me just quickly tell you the story behind the names is that mm. when I was born, um, black children had to be registered, black children born in urban areas had to be registered within 36 hours in order to qualify to stay in the urban area with their parents. So, and I was born at my grandparents' home. My father was away in seminary. And so they sent my my aunt's ex-husband, and I say, that's the reason he's an ex-husband, to go and register me. And he just took the names that everybody in the house called out and wrote them all down and put them all down on my birth certificate. So oh. I have a whole page of names. <laughs> okay. So you have more names than your siblings do then? I do. Oh, I interesting. do. Okay. <laughs> all right. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Okay. Excellent. Um, so this was actually the first question we got, so I'm going to give it pride of place here as the, well, I guess it's the second question I'm asking. Anyway, uh, the, the, and I don't necessarily know who is writing these. I don't have names. So to those of you who are writing these, and thank you again, um, this individual says, how do we address implicit bias across congregations? And you and I are both at congregations. You've been at yours now for since September, maybe we can talk about that. Anyway, how do we address implicit bias across congregations who may or may not be invested completely? Most are likely to deny racism, but raise their sensitivity after becoming more aware of implicit bias. Um, so could you uh, maybe comment on that, or do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, you know, oof. You know, I mean, the the, the church is, is is also part of, society, right? So we come into church with all the things that we get from the world around us. And, um, and, I, and I think that um, we do ourselves a disservice if we, we try and say that in church we are somehow different from our, our daily lives. Because if we are if we are the followers of, of Jesus, he said very clearly that what you do each and every day is how you show your faith or lack thereof, right? That how, how we live in our, our, our daily experience is, is a, a testament to our faith and our belief. And so, um, so what, I what I would say in terms of uh, addressing implicit bias and I think even more than implicit bias, I think that what we often see, particularly in, 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 white, um, in white Christian congregations, is a, a level of indifference that, um, that because um, racism does not impact them, or at least doesn't seem to impact them on a daily basis, then the, the stories of racism do not sit in their hearts 
in the same way as stories that they can identify with. So, uh, so I think that our our challenge and our call, as um, particularly as as faith leaders, is is to call our people to pay attention to who they are in the world. That that how that when you see uh, or when you hear, let me, let me not even say when you see, because very often you are not seeing in the first person the, uh, these instances, right? So when you as a person of faith <clears throat> read um, b- uh, volumes and tomes and, and research that says that in our justice system, Black people are, one, more likely to be arrested for um, crimes that white people will be forgiven for by the policeman right there, police person right there. Then secondly, that once they are in front of a court, that black people are more likely to be sentenced to jail, to be sentenced to longer terms. That that then as a, as a Christian, that you need to be, we need to start, asking our people to ask themselves the question, how is it that I can hear these stories and not feel that this has a negative impact on the kingdom of God and therefore a negative impact on me as a child of God? So I, I, I think that the challenge for us is to, to go back in a way, to go back to the gospel lesson that said that how you are with your brother and sister is what God sees and God bases God's perception of you and the work that you are doing in the world rather than what it is that we do on Sunday, which is a marvelous thing, which is one of my favorite times of the week. However, that is the worship in the sanctuary, but the worship of God is meant to be our living. Lovely, thank you. Um, And I'm gonna actually follow that up with, I guess it's a related question, um, which is what encouragement do you have for faith leaders who may know the whole true story needs to be told, back to your language about telling the truth, Mm-hmm. Um, but are wondering how to tell it with and alongside those who would rather be comfortable or have not grappled with their own journey with racism and reconciliation. Mm. Whoa. So that's a long, now, sorry. If, if I get that right, y'all better make me the Pope or something, or, <laughs> or at least the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> if, I'm able, if I'm able to give this um, to, to faith leaders. So, you know, I, I do think that as faith leaders, we need to start that journey in ourselves, right? The, the, so the courage to speak can only come out of the courage to live. And so, um, so we have to be honest with ourselves about how, how much we have been um, part of the, 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 the attempt to end injustice and oppression or how much we have been silent and therefore have actually been complicit in 
in injustice and oppression. And, that, and then I think that that's, that's the starting place for us as faith leaders. And that when we say that, when we speak that truth to our people, then they, it gives people the courage to look into themselves as well. That when, when they know that faith leaders are saying, you know what, <clears throat> I, I want to be this great um, uh, fighter for justice, but I also know that I fall short over and over and over again. And, and that this journey is a journey that we are on together and we are all going to fall short. We are all going to fail. There are going to be days when we come home and all we feel is shame at our inability to stand up to the bully, our inability to call out racism, our inability to call out sexism, that, we're, that that is going to be the reality for every single one of us. And that I think is the most important lesson that we can impart as faith leaders, that that is part of the faith journey. Look at the disciples. I mean, if there was never, there was never a more messed up group of people than that. They messed up over and over again as they were walking beside Jesus. So yes, you are going to mess up. You are going to say something that is heard as racist. But if you have the courage at least to say, I did, I am sorry, and I want to start again and try again. And each time that we try, it gets a little bit easier and we get a little bit more consistent and we get a little better at being those who call out the implicit bias in ourselves and therefore offer the opportunity to those who look upon us as leaders. Thank you. Um, so this is a, a different, uh, completely different <laughs> sort of area. Uh, what okay. impact has social media had on you personally in the past several years? Oh, social media. And I am terrible. I mean, I am, I'm really awful. I have a Twitter account. I have an Instagram account. I have a Facebook account. And I, I don't even know what I'm doing with them, really. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, I, will, um, I, I, I will tweet. It is tweet, right? I will tweet every once in a while. I'm more regular on Facebook, Instagram, forget it. I'm just, I'm, so TikTok, I, you know, I'm, I'm not even, not even aware. But, you know, the, the, the thing that the, the, the impact that social media has had on me personally has been the ability to stay connected to family and friends um, around the world and to be in touch with people in times of joy and in times of sorrow, and also to, to be able to know about struggles that are going on in different parts of the world that I might not have known of, and to be able then to, at the very least, lift up people in prayer, and, and sometimes to be able to actually send messages 
of support and, and decide how I want to show my support for struggles. But, um, but, for, but I have to admit that the, the biggest impact has been my ability to uh, stay in touch with people who I have met throughout my journey. Um, you know, I, growing up, we moved almost every three years. So I have friends from countries around the world. And these last few years have been wonderful in, a, in being able to see friends, babies and children, well, not babies anymore, children and find out about what they're doing in their lives and to stay connected with, with their stories. Hmm. Great. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, I, when I introduced you, I mentioned those um, <laughs> t two stories. And I, we talked a little about this in the, um, namely, the long and winding road on your path to ministry and then the fact that Jonah, and Jonah. is, and Jonah. So we talked a little bit hey. about this in the interview I did for, with you in, in the magazine. But okay. could you just say maybe a word about how that um, image of the long and winding road or of running away from God's call can be applied not just to people in sort of ordained ministry, but in, indeed mm -hmm. to the life of faith for all people, which I think it is it is true. That uh, so, could you talk yes. about that? Yes, and and I do think that all of us, as as people of faith, and and this is part of the reason that mine was a long and winding road was because I kept telling God, "Yes, I hear you. That there is a call on my life, and I am doing the work right now." that th this is the work of gender justice and of racial justice that I'm doing that I think that I have been called to. So uh, yes, I think that we are, all, we are all on a path of a call that God puts on us to be um, something to he help heal the world. And, and um, you know, I, I have found that having that experience of the long and winding road has helped me um, to, to be able to talk to people in my parish and in other, in other ministry about listening to their heart, which is to me the seed of God in each of us, listening to their heart as they struggle with different questions in their lives. When they struggle with, was I the best that I could be? To say, maybe you weren't the best that you could be, but you were trying to be and you have an opportunity now to try even more. And so I, I, I do think that for all of us, I would hope that there is a sense of there are times when um, what, we, what, we, what we feel strongly we should be doing feels too much. And all we can do is run away and trust that God will find us wherever we have run to and call us back into whatever it is that we're meant to be doing. That for each of us, I think that there are times when we kind of lose the, the you know, that we were told that the, the way is straight and narrow. Well, we, we lose that straight and narrow and we, we, we get off on tangents. Um, and, and, and those tangents can be all kinds of things in our personal life. The decision that, you know, we're not going to do that course, we're not going to finish that course that we signed up for, that we're not going, whatever it is, that 
that to give ourselves grace and 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 I think that that's what those two thing those two stories for me have have meant most of all have been that to acknowledge the grace of God that is out there that for all in all my winding God was not far away and in all my running God was like okay keep running you know I can still see you right and what you are what you have been called to bring into the world you will do because I trust you and and I think that that is the story for all of us that is and it is not simply about ordained ministry definitely not hmm. yeah Okay, I think we have a two or three more, and as I mentioned to you, Naomi, this is we we shoot for on these virtual ones for about an hour. We're doing well. We might go slightly over, it, but that's fine. Um, so let's see. The uh, again, I've got I believe three more. Um, okay. How first of those three? How do? Oh, okay. I guess now we have four more. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, though. Uh, how do we as a community heal when people aren't comfortable with the truth? And then they say, Tennessee just banned critical race theory in schools. I'm fearful of what that means moving forward. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, of things that people do to protect themselves from the truth, right? And, um, and, and, and the truth, again, sorry, that was... <laughs> and, the, and really... Um, all that we can do is keep pushing for truth and justice. And, um, and I, I am somebody who, who believes that, you know, in the end, that the truth will, in fact, um, be victorious. It does need people who are paying attention to the ways in which the truth is being silenced and are willing to, to, to be the courageous voices that continue to raise that truth. So given, I mean, Tennessee is where I lived for 19 years um, and struggled with the, the increasing right-wing um, move in, 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 in that state government, not, not in the people that I, that I met so many of in Tennessee who continue in the face of uh, a, 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 a state government that says critical race theory cannot be taught in schools, that people who continue to put together freedom schools every summer in Tennessee that teach um, the, the, the history of this country, that teach about the contributions of indigenous people and of, 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 people, of, of people of color and of black people. So it, in, in the face of people who want to hide from the truth, then the work of those of us who have the voice, who have voices, and we all have voices in some sense in some community, in some setting, in whether that setting is just our family or our church or even the classroom or the playground, that we all have the space and a voice where we must continue to raise up and challenge 
those who who are uncomfortable with facing the truth. And 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 the reality is is that they will always be uh, a push against uncomfortable truth. It it is it has happened throughout history, and the call on us who say that we really do want reconciliation, that we want justice, is that we cannot we we cannot sit back. There is no time when we can be silent. We must be consistently speaking up in, 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 in raising that truth and in challenging the, the lies of um, critical race theory as, form, as, as causing racism. I mean, really? Okay. And now I'm off my soapbox. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to combine these two. You can choose to take them separately or combine them. Uh, and we do have actually these two and then one other. So, um, okay. Um, so the, the, the fir first part of this one is, do you think the U.S. is ready for truth and reconciliation trials? And then... Not a lot of words, but a big question. What is the largest challenge to reach equity for all people of color? Whoa! <laughs> now, if I answer the second one, okay, so now I'm, I'm already the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> and now I want a Nobel Peace Prize, okay? <laughs> so so just, just keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Duly um, noted. <laughs> I, I am not sure that nationally, that that there will be that the the U.S. is ready for a national truth and reconciliation commission. I I am hopeful. I know that there are there are moves in that direction um, from people in the faith community, from people in in academic areas who are, are pushing um, the this 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 government, particularly um, the Biden White House, to take um, a, a brave step in establishing. Uh, a, a truth commission for uh, for the United States. I'm not sure that that is is going to happen in the next four years, in the next five years, in the next twenty years. But I do think that the energy exists in the U.S. for that kind of 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 attempt to happen in localized communities, because that is where people where people's lived experience is. And you know, we have the example of the Greensboro Truth Commission that did amazing work in that community and, and, and laid the groundwork for a work of building a beloved community in that city. Um, so, so I think that, that the energy actually exists and, and that it is up to us in, as faith leaders, as college presidents, as high school principals, as guidance counselors, to be working to look at how do we do that kind of, of study of ourselves and our community wherever we are. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, maybe what we will see in the U.S. will not be a U.S. Truth and, and Reconciliation Commission, but we will see many truth and reconciliation commissions happening in different communities, sponsored through churches um, and 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 other organizations. Um, what what is? Oh my goodness! 
You know, maybe for me, I think that the biggest thing is when we all recognize that equity, in fact, is a gift to us all, that equity liberates us all, that making sure that everybody has equal access to power, to education, to opportunities is actually opening the the doors for all of us. It is not making the pie smaller by making by making it available to all. That when we inc- when we bring in more of our community, when we make our society an equitable one, then we have access to the gifts, the imagination, the energy of everybody. And that people are not spending energy simply protecting themselves as a black woman walking on the streets of Beverly Hills, a black woman shopping, a a black child jogging that if we are not using our energy to protect ourselves from the dangers of racism, that then we have the energy to imagine and build a much better society for everybody. Okay. So I have, I have received now one additional one. I'm gonna, <laughs> I, so this, this will be now the penultimate question. We will have this one and then the final one. Okay. Um, and so to those of you who may be still sending them in, I apologize, but it, this happens every time. There just has to be a point. We, we have to cut it off. So this one, um, uh, the individual writes, we are so deeply divided in our country regarding racism. Many experience racism daily. Others don't. Most sincerely wish to see us come together. Some feel empowered to point fingers and call others racists. The others are hurt by being called racist. The others feel compelled to stuff their truthful questions and responses to being called implicit racists. How do you suggest we have truthful, loving conversations so we can move forward? Mm. Um, Yeah, so, you know, I think that we, we spend so much time um worrying about the impact of being called racist that we don't spend very much time looking at the impact of racism right so um i think that we have built a a a a, a country um where being challenged for racist acts is seen as an affront to your humanity where people experiencing racist acts are not, the the, the fact of the actual impact on their humanity is not not taken at the same level. Um, So we we end up tiptoeing around the conversations about race because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. And I mean, nobody wants to hurt people's feelings. However, when it comes to uh, a, a balance between feeling comfortable and not hurt 
as opposed to being alive and treated justly, I think that we all have to suck it up and say there are days when I am going to be uncomfortable. There are days when I am going to be challenged for what I said or did um, that and its impact on someone else. And that discomfort is not in any way questioning my humanity. That when somebody says, I experienced what you said as racist, they are not saying you are less than human. They are in fact offering you an opportunity to say, hmm, is it possible that that, that, that is where that came from? Because let us be clear that this country is a country that was built on white supremacy. So all of us have that in us. All of us, uh, black, white, indigenous, people of color, all of us have the impact of white supremacy coursing through us. And our responses to statements and actions often come out of the place of that, of that socialization. In this, in this society. So when, when, when we get to a place of feeling uncomfortable, I would, I would pray that our response to the discomfort is to sit a minute with that discomfort and, and, and to reflect on how could what I have done or said been viewed as racist. And maybe to think about if I were a person of color in this situation, what would have been my reaction to what I said or did? Because we have not been socialized to pay attention to the experience of the people on the margins. That is not our socialization. And so to, to stop ourselves and to think about what is, what, is, what is what I have said or done saying to somebody who is marginalized. Okay, last question. <laughs> uh, this is a little different direction and uh, it brings up your father. And I think if I hadn't asked at least one question about your father, um, it would have, people would have, Wondered. So it, it, here's what it says. I saw you two, the band, uh, in concert and remember seeing your father on the big screen speaking before the song One was performed. Uh -huh. I, also, I also recall hearing that Bono of you two serenaded your father for his 80th birthday. Mm -hmm. Bono, I guess. Is that weird for you to see one of the world's biggest rock stars showing so much love and respect for your father? And then the final part of it is also... Does he call and serenade you as well for your milestone birthdays? <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it is actually, um, it is kind of strange. Um, for me, you know, for, for me and my siblings, especially, I think it is strange because, you know, we were not raised with my father as a world figure. So mm. to have people like Bono, um, who um, who calls my father his priest um, to you know be in our our family um, 
celebrations and, and stuff like that is, is pretty wild. Um, I have to say that my children have a slightly different perspective because that's all they've known. Um, mm. I, they, my, they went to spend a, a vacation with my parents at one point, my two younger ones. And um, my son came back and was like, so Peter was teaching Kulu how to swim. And then afterwards he sang a song. And I was like, Peter, Peter, Peter who? He's like, oh, um, Peter, I can't remember his last name, but he sang a song to Kulu and Kulu loved Peter Gabriel. And I was so mad. I was like, child, what do you mean? Peter, Peter, and you didn't know who Peter was. But so... <laughs> So, um, so for me, it continues to be strange and, um, and I have loved the opportunity to meet people like Bono, um, and, um, and, and to see, um, the respect with which they, in which they hold my father. And, and, and it has been, um, truly a, a wonderful experience to be able to meet all kinds of people, his holiness, the Dalai Lama. Betty Williams the, and, and Mary Maguire, the Nobel Peace Prize winners from Ireland. The, the names go on and on and on. And I continue to be this person with my autograph book, like, hi, uh, yes, I'm his daughter. Could you sign this? So I, I am not cool at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, wonderful. Naomi, it's been so good to have you with us. I, I mentioned well, uh, when we were chatting beforehand that I we have a small gift for you, and I'll I'll show it to the camera here. Well, I'll show it to oh, the camera so goodness. you can see it. It's a piece of granite that says, uh, "With thanks to Naomi Tutu for bringing faith to life." And of course, if you were here, I would hand it to you. Oh, you're not, so we will mail it to you as well. I also <laughs> want to say a word of thanks uh, to all of you who have tuned in not only tonight but throughout this past season of events. We're so grateful that you've joined us. We do look forward to seeing you again in the fall. And until then, be well, stay in touch, and God bless.